0: Good morning. I'm Dave Martin. I look around and I realize some of you, even though you may have been coming here a while, I may not have met you yet. Becky and I are charter members of Gresham Bible Church. We go all the way back to 2007, but um, somehow with COVID and all the kind of disconnection that happened during that time, uh, people have come that we haven't had a chance to even meet yet. So I hope we can do something about that before too long. If you saw the sermon title, it's all about mindset. Maybe you wondered if you had wandered into a self-help seminar or a prosperity gospel (laughs) church. Don't worry. Um, This isn't a message about all the magical things you can do with PMA, positive mental attitude. But on the other hand, the Bible puts tremendous emphasis on our responsibility to manage our minds. If you think of a person as being made up of body and mind, and emotions and will. Just think about how much direct control you have over each of those components of yourself. How about your body? Well, when we're young, we, we tend to think that we have a fair amount of control over our bodies, but we find out that as time goes by, things like genetics and injuries and illness and aging uh, put a real dent in our ability to control our bodies. How about our emotions? We, we tend to seek out experiences that will elevate our emotions, but again, we have to kind of admit that most of the time we're, we're not in the driver's seat with respect to our emotions. Otherwise, we'd be happy a lot more of the time. Um, but how is it that our emotions are more stirred by cat videos and movies and football than by the glories of God? And our will, how about our will? How much direct control do we have? Well, we... Most of us have learned that we can't rely on sure willpower to bring about a desired result. Just look at the miserable track record of New Year's resolutions. But then that brings us to our minds. The Bible, and particularly the Apostle Paul, assumes that we do have the ability to manage our minds, our mindset. And when we practice setting our minds on the right things, then our emotions and our wills, and even to some extent our bodies, will come into line with Um, each other and produce the kind of growth that we hope for. Colossians 3, 1 through 4 calls us to reflect on some incredible realities. Realities that we would not know unless God had revealed them to us. And then we're called to set our minds on these realities. If we really see these things for what, what they are, we will be more and more different from people who do not know about these realities. The big idea in these four short verses today is simple and obvious. Set your minds on things that are above. That's in verse 2. In addition to unpacking these verses, I'd like to demonstrate a few ways that we can set our minds on things above. So we'll do it through showing some images on the screen. By the way, feel free to take pictures of the screen if that will help you remember. That's kind of today's version of taking notes. So uh, feel free to do that. We'll also, uh, I'll recite some memorized scripture. That's another way that I use to set my mind on things above. Uh, We'll also talk about stories and songs and how those things can help us in this regard. First, though, let's look at the book of Colossians through the lens of an acronym, V-I-M. I don't know if you've ever heard this. When I was a kid, my dad used to talk about vim, vigor, and vitality. So vim, I guess, has something to do with energy, vitality. But I learned this VIM acronym from a very wise man, Dallas Willard. And it's been really helpful to me in a lot of situations. The V stands for vision, the I stands for intention, and the M stands for means. So that provides one way for us to look at the uh, book of Colossians. Let's look at a couple of examples of how you would use Vim before we look at Colossians through that lens. So let's say your vision is to run in a marathon. You say, someday I'd like to run in a marathon. I mean, I, I can't relate to that, but somebody like Nick Stumbo probably can. and Maybe there's someone else here who's had that vision. But you need to go farther if you're really gonna move toward that goal. You have to have an intention. You have to say, not only do I wanna do it someday, I wanna run the P- Portland Marathon this fall. And then you have to go further and say, I, okay, I'm going to adopt certain means to follow, out, follow through with that intention. So you're gonna set up your running schedule, maybe your diet, maybe your sleep schedule. Another example, let's say you someday wanna go on a dream vacation to Tahiti. That's a great vision, but as long as it's only a vision and only vague, you're not gonna go anywhere. So you form an intention. An intention. I'm gonna go to Tahiti next winter. And then you need means, you need to start saving money, you need to start planning your itinerary, doing research. Now let's look at the book of Colossians through that VIM lens. If you were to ask the Apostle Paul to say what, what his vision was, we might look at Colossians 1.28 where he said, he struggles with all his energy to present every person mature and complete in Christ. What would be his intention well, we might see that in Colossians 2, 6, and 7. Uh, As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him. That would be the intention. But then you need to find some means. You need to establish a mindset. That's our t- passage this morning. Establish a mindset which then results in definite patterns of living. And so we see those patterns of living in more detail starting two weeks from now when we're uh, next in Colossians, starting with... Uh, Colossians three five and going up through chapter four verse six. Just as a side note, you know this this V I M formula can really I think help you if you or maybe your child is uh, not making satisfactory progress toward a goal, whatever it is. You might just think about this: Is my vision clear? Is it realistic? Have I formed? a clear intention that is reasonable and that I've really committed myself to? And then have I adopted means that are going to be realistic and effective in taking me toward that uh, vision? Now the first 17 verses of Colossians 3 are really a unit, but because it's so rich we're, we're breaking it up into two pieces this week verses 1 through 4, two weeks from now verses 5 through 17. But uh, right now I want you to just listen as I recite those 17 verses. Don't look at your Bible as you usually do, but just look up here. Maybe, maybe um, pretend that you're in a Colossian church 2,000 years ago and the Apostle Paul is saying these words to you. So since then, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Give us receptive hearts as we approach your word now. Help me to handle it accurately and effectively, and may it find good heart soil where it can grow and produce real change in our lives. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's visualize these four powerful verses now. Here we see the what, the why, and the how of Christian living. The what is the big idea of our message, seek and set your mind on the things that are above. That's our present imperative. Well, why are we called to do this? Because of what has happened in our past, you see that in the lower left, and what will happen in the future. Previously, we died and were raised with Christ, we're told here, and we'll talk a little bit more about what that means. As a result, we were given a new status with God, a relationship that is invisible right now, yet totally secure. Not only do we have this new identity, but we also look forward to Jesus returning and displaying this glorious relationship that we have with him. So our past and our future provide a huge why for us, a motive for doing what we are told here to do. The how will be explored Uh, starting two weeks from now as we look at the rest of chapter 3 and on into chapter 4, though we will touch a little bit on the how this morning too. Before we unpack the uh, the text, I'd like to just talk a little bit about story and song, how they can help us understand this idea of setting our minds on things above. Now, I'm going to call for a show of hands. How many of you have read or are familiar with the story of the Chronicles of Narnia? Wow, a lot good. How about Tolkien's Lord of the Rings? How many of you are familiar? How about uh, any Harry Potter fans in the house? Quite a few. Um, okay, how about Batman or Spider-Man? You know kind of the general story of those things don't be don't be embarrassed. Um, well, there's something that all of these epic stories, or at least many of them have in common. The main character or characters are somehow, Transported out of their dull everyday lives, their everyday existence, into a world that's full of great and noble people, and horrible and awful people, and monsters, and maybe trolls, and orcs, and witches, incredible dangers, and a difficult task to accomplish. Usually, in these stories, there's a hero who sacrifices himself or herself to save everyone else. Think of the Narnia Chronicles, where the children pass through this wardrobe into this magical land of Narnia. Or in another C.S. Lewis series uh, for adults, fantasy series called the the, uh, Space Trilogy, a man named Ransom, an ordinary man, but he's transported to Mars and back, and then to Venus and back, where he does battle with cosmic forces of evil. In another beloved saga, The Lord of the Rings, we see little Bilbo Baggins, this boring little hobbit who's just living a peaceful kind of dull life and he's uh, transported uh, out of the little shire where he lives. And he and and later his nephew Frodo are catapulted into these incredible momentous events in Middle-earth. Well, what happens when the Narnia children and Ransom and Bilbo and Frodo come back to their... Uh, ordinary lives from these extraordinary adventures. They look pretty much the same on the outside, but something has changed, they're deeply changed. Their experiences have made them stronger, braver, wiser, more tender-hearted, more joyful than they've ever been before because they've tasted a larger reality and they knew it was waiting for them. If you would ask them about their experience, they would probably say, I was part of this incredible, heroic story. Now I'm back, but I'll never be the same. That other world is burning in my heart. Well, we live in a story like that. In fact, it's the greatest story ever, greater than the Lord of the Rings, or Star Wars, or Harry Potter. We've had a glimpse of that other world where the hero has snatched us from the jaws of death at great cost to himself. And even though we're not there yet, we know he's waiting for us and that everything that is his will be ours someday as well. So every Sunday we go back into the story and we remind ourselves of what is most true and beautiful. In the words of Colossians 3, we set our minds on the things that are above, but it's not just on Sundays that we do this. The point is to be regularly changing the default setting of your mind, recalibrating our mental focus, so that we are more and more preoccupied with the things that matter in that unseen realm, that realm above, as Paul terms it. Well, just as these make-believe stories can deeply move us and actually aid us in changing our mindset, I've found that songs can do something similar. Here's a song by a singer-songwriter named David Wilcox from North Carolina. Like Narnia, or like the Lord of the Rings, uh, this song is not overtly Christian, but for those with ears to hear, it points our minds and hearts to the gospel and the things that are above You'll get more of the impact by listening to the song, it's called Show the Way, you can look it up online, but let me just quote the lyrics to you. You say you see no hope, you see no reason to believe that the world would ever change. You say that love is foolish to believe because there will always be some crazy with an army or a knife to wake you from your daydream, put the fear back in your life. Look, if someone wrote a play just to glorify what's stronger than hate, would they not arrange the stage to look as if the hero came too late? He's almost in defeat. It's looking like the evil side will win. But on the ed- edge of every seat, from the moment that the whole thing begins, it's love that makes the mortar. And it's love that stacked these stones. And it's love that made this stage here, though it looks like we're alone. In this scene set in shadows, like the night is here to say, there is evil cast around us, but it's love that wrote the play, and in this darkness, love will show the way. So now the stage is set. You feel your own heart beating in your chest. This life's not over yet, so we get up on our feet and do our best. We play against the fear. We play against the reasons not to try. We're playing for the tear that's burning in the happy angel's eyes, because it's love that makes the mortar, it's love that stacked these stones. It's love that made the stage here, though it looks like we're alone. In this scene set in shadow, like the night is here to stay, there is evil cast around us, but it's love that wrote the play. And in this darkness, love will show the way. For me, songs like this and stories and other kinds of beauty stir my imagination and my emotions in ways that point me to the things above. Now let's walk through verses 1 through 4 of Colossians 3, observing what's there. First of all, notice how many times the word Christ appears in these four short verses. It actually appears four times, twice in verse 1, and then once each in verses 3 and 4. The English translators have hidden something from us here, and I think it's worth noticing. In the original language, Christ is preceded each time by the word the, the Christ, Now, the word the doesn't always occur before Christ in the New Testament. Uh, For example, in Galatians 2, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, not with the Christ. But other times it is translated uh, as when Jesus' disciples said to him, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, the point here, the important thing is to be reminded that Christ is not just a surname. It's not just Jesus' last name. It's a title. He's the chosen one. He is the promised one, the king who would come to rule over and save his people. He's the Messiah. If I were to introduce someone to you as Charles King, you would probably shake hands and say, oh, hi Charles. But if I introduced him to you as Charles the King, that would put a different spin on it, wouldn't it? You would look at this person in a different way. I've developed the habit when I see the the name Jesus Christ in the New Testament to insert mentally that that word the in the middle just to remind myself of who Jesus really is in relation to me. Now let's talk about our past. We'll look. We'll talk about our past and then our future, and then we'll come back to our present, which is. The, the, the central part of our message today. Verses one and three, let's look at verse one first. If you have been raised with Christ, that's how it starts out, if. Well, it's, in this case the word if does not indicate uncertainty. It's better to translate it as since assuming, in other words assuming you are Jesus followers or in view of the fact that you were raised with Christ, set your mind on things above. What, is, what does it mean that we have died with Christ with Jesus and been raised with him. It means that in some mysterious way, but a very real way, that Jesus took our old sinful selves with him to the grave. We just sang that song a few minutes ago. My sin, not, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Isn't that amazing? His death became our death. He took our own sinful selves with him into the grave, and when he came out, uh, out of the grave alive, he again brought us to life with him. His resurrected life became our resurrected life. We have become so linked to Jesus in his death and resurrection that essentially we have the same status with God the Father as Jesus does. God looks at us and treats us as if we had lived the life Jesus lived, as if we had died the death Jesus died. As if we are as beautiful and holy as Jesus is. I mean, that almost sounds irreverent, doesn't it? The Father delights in us just as he delights in Jesus. We can't even begin to wrap our minds around that, but the fact is that God tells us that over and over in Scripture. And uh, there's a great hymn called And Can It Be by Charles Wesley. And uh, part of that hymn says, No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. So it says your life is hidden with Christ in God. What about our future? We see that in verse 4. When Jesus appears, we will appear with him in glory. The Christ is our life. He's not just the giver of eternal life. He is our life. We can't be too preoccupied or absorbed with Jesus. Paul said in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And in Philippians, he says, uh, to me, to live is Christ. So we're between, in between the already and the not yet of our Christian experience. Our life is already hidden with Jesus in God, but, and we've already died and been raised with him, but he has not yet appeared. But when he does appear, then we who are united with him will appear with him also in full view. John Lightfoot, an English Bible scholar in the 1600s, said this, The veil which now shrouds your higher life from others will then be withdrawn. The world which now persecutes, despises, ignores you will then be blinded with the dazzling glory of the revelation. That glorious revelation, when Jesus comes back, is going to be jaw-dropping, to say the least. But our glory is not just a future thing. Glory has already been given to us. Jesus, in his prayer in John chapter 17, said, I have given them, my disciples, the glory that you, Father, gave me. Think of the glory we've been given. Look at these other verses on the screen. We are called priests, a holy, special status before God, having direct access to him. We have been adopted and written into God's will as full shareholders in His estate. We are dearly loved children and sisters and brothers to Jesus. That's a lot of glory, but at present it's hidden, it's under wraps. I can certainly identify with what I read recently from a blogger named Glenna Marshall. Listen to this. She said, I love my home, my family, my life, but there is something carved into the deepest layer of who I am that longs for a life that's realer than this, that lasts longer, that means more, that hurts less. When I'm standing at the stove or taking kids to school or folding laundry or working on a manuscript, I know that this is just a shadow of what's coming next. Not that this life doesn't matter because, oh, how much it matters. But sometimes I feel like I'm playing house. Home, really. Actually, I'm playing home. I'm living and breathing and working and parenting and loving and resting in a place that isn't my true home. I feel it all the time. Some days of living are so good and sweet and enjoyable that I know they're just a whisper of what's to come for those of us who walk with Christ. And some days are so hard and lonely and heavy that tears rub the skin raw around my eyes. Those days also remind me that we're not home yet, not truly. Thankfully, this isn't it. What comes next for believers is the home we can only imagine here. Our best days are just a sin-tainted glimmer of the glory that awaits us in a city whose builder and architect is God. Our worst days are an arrow that guides our vision to the home that holds our true citizenship. So on that day of this great unveiling of our lives, our hidden lives, many questions people asked or thought about us will be decisively answered. Why do those Christians give away so much money? Why did they invest so much of their lives in adopting or caring for neglected, disabled children? Why did they choose a standard of living below what their income might have entitled them to? Why did they take vacation or retirement time to go around the world serving the poorest of the poor? Why did they persist in telling the good news about Jesus in the face of ridicule, rejection, and sometimes persecution? The great English preacher Charles Spurgeon explained this wonderful truth in his usual colorful way. We are in the chrysalis state now, and those who are the liveliest worms among us grow more and more uneasy in that chrysalis state. Some are so frozen up in it that they forget the hereafter and appear content to remain a chrysalis forever. But others of us feel we would sooner not be than be what we now are forever. We feel as if we must burst our bonds, and when that time of bursting shall come, when the chrysalis shall get its painted wings and mount to the land of flowers, then shall we be satisfied. Let us comfort one another, therefore, with these words, and look up out of our wormhood, And our chrysalis state, to that happier and better day when we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We've talked about our past, we've talked about our future, now let's talk about our present. Let's look at the heart of our passage. We see it in verses 1b and 2, where it says, Seek the things that are above, set your minds on the things that are above. I don't think we need to spend a lot of time teasing those things apart, seek and set your mind, Uh, although you might want to think of seeking as a general orientation and direction of life and setting your mind being the deliberate concrete actions that we take um, to move in that direction. But the main idea here is that we build our lives around Jesus and what he thinks is important. That starts with setting our minds or our thoughts in a particular way. And it's not a one-time action. The verb that's used here is a continuous action verb. So we should think about that as be constantly seeking and setting your mind on the things that are above. We are to be preoccupied and absorbed with heaven. Not the caricature heaven, not the fairy tale idea of heaven, But the realm where God is completely in charge, where everything that is done is what he wants done. Now, this preoccupation with things above will make you look crazy to some people. You realize that? There's got to be a reason for the old saying, she's so heavenly-minded, she's no earthly good. I don't know what circumstances led to that particular saying, but it actually is exactly backwards. Backwards. The more occupied we are with heaven, the more actual value and good we will bring to the world. Here's what John Piper says about the word seek. Seek the things that are above. This is the pathway to the mindset shaped by the things above. Seek them, pursue them, chase them, track them down, seize them, hold on to them, gaze at them, dig into them, understand them, taste them, savor them, treasure them. This is not passive. No one gains the mindset of heaven passively. You seek it or you don't have it. C.S. Lewis said it this way, I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. So let's go back to that VIM, V-I-M formula. If you've been gripped by the vision of God's invisible kingdom, your life that's hidden with Christ and God, then you understand the radical change in identity uh, in your past and the unimaginable glory of your future. If you've got a grip on that, then uh, you're ready to declare your intention. I want to, I intend to live my life oriented to the things that matter to God. So if you have that vision and that intention in place, then the big question is how? How can I keep uh, seeking and setting my mind on these important things in such a way that I am being shaped to resemble Jesus more and more closely? What are the practical means of doing this? Here's one way we might put the principle in this VIM formula. Vision, I have died and been raised with Jesus. My relationship to him is concealed, yet secure. One day he will return and put on display this deep connection he has with all who love him. Intention, in view of these massive truths, I intend to orient my thoughts and desires and hopes toward him, letting him change me as I immerse my mind in things he values. And means, I will begin a lifelong project of bringing my mind, my thought life, into submission to him. I will adopt disciplines and practices to help me continually recalibrate my mind to things above. So this is where it gets really practical. In the next Colossians sermon, we'll look at some of the specifics that Paul laid out to live this way. For now, I want to give just a few examples of practices that... uh, we can use. uh, We can use to set our minds on things above. No doubt some of you are already using some of these practices. But maybe you haven't thought very specifically about just why you're doing it. Some of the time-honored basics, of course, are Bible engagement, meaning reading, studying the Bible, prayer, fellowship, worship with other believers. Other spiritual disciplines that have been practiced throughout the history of the church include uh, Bible memorization, Meditation, service, solitude, silence. All of these things can be done in many different ways. God has given us a a lot of freedom in how we practice these things, in which practices we choose. As long as we're keeping the goal in mind, there's tremendous room for variety and creativity in how we nurture that connection with Jesus and the things above. I like to think of these mindset practices as grappling hooks securing lines of connection to the realm above. Every time you engage in one of these mind-setting practices, you're throwing a grappling hook to that other realm, strengthening strengthening your connection to it. The present age of technology with our computers and cell phones is a double-edged sword in this regard. On one hand, this technology gives us unprecedented ways to set our minds on trivial things and worthless things and unholy things. But, on the other hand, it offers us wonderful ways to occupy our minds with things above, like being able to listen to music or teaching or books anywhere and any time, or being able to connect with our friends uh, through audio, video, text, to pray and to discuss things and to encourage one another. The big question is, are we willing to take inventory of our mental landscape, identifying areas where we either waste time or indulge in ungodly thoughts? Are we determined to rearrange our mental furniture, cleaning out unwanted and unneeded things and replacing them with God-honoring mental activity? Will we enlist others to help us in that. We really need each other to keep us ourselves honest in our pursuit of our intentions. I'm trying to say this in a way that's encouraging to you who are already engaged in, and striving for this heavenly heaven-oriented mindset, but also uh, I want to make you a little bit uncomfortable, I hope in a good way, uh, if you are kind of passively drifting and uh, not taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, as Paul says it in Romans 10.5. Here's how Tim Keller puts it. If the beauty and glory of Christ do not capture our imaginations, dominate our waking thought, and fill our hearts with longing and desire, then something else will. We will be continually ruminating on something or some things, that as our hope and joy. Whatever those things are, they will frame our souls and transform us into their likeness. If we don't behold the glory of God in the face of Christ, then something else will rule our lives. We will be slaves. I want to drive this home with one final image here. A few weeks ago, Eric gave us a great mental picture of the Christian life, not as a walk in a meadow, but more as Uh, the image of being out in the middle of a raging river up to your armpits and struggling against the current. And in that image, Jesus comes up to us in a boat, and he pulls us up into the boat with him. I'd like to just borrow that image and just embellish it a little bit more um, to help us get the point that Paul is making today. So let's imagine the great river of life with the current uh, carrying everything downstream, and yet our destination happens to be upstream. So, to move toward our destination, we need some kind of power to move against the current of the world and the flesh and the devil that would otherwise carry us to destruction. Jesus invites us into his boat, but not as cruise ship pass- passengers who sit on deck chairs admiring the scenery and are waited on hand and foot, although I must say I have enjoyed that experience. <laughs> the main power for our boat comes From the wind of the Holy Spirit in our sails. But we also are expected to contribute our efforts to man the oars and trim the sails and maintain the ship and pull people out of the water into the boat. There's a job for everyone. We work hard but we know that the strength to do our work comes from our captain, Jesus. There's no place for freeloaders or stowaways on this boat. Some people on board may think they have a free pass to the destination, but when we arrive, they will be exposed and expelled because they never were loyal to the captain. Meanwhile, along the sides of this great river, there are shopping malls, casinos, amusement parks, beautiful sunbathers on the beach. I'm not saying that all those things are bad in themselves, but they're not a destination, not a place for us to focus our lives on. We must keep our minds and bodies focused on the movement of our boat toward its destination, a destination that will be immeasurably more wonderful than all of these riverside attractions. To sum up, what does our passage tell us? You have died to the old life and you've been raised to new life in Jesus. This status is not yet obvious to human sight, but it is real and secure. That being the case, occupy your mind with the things of Jesus, not the passing things of this world. When Jesus finally reveals himself, your connection with him will become obvious, and you will share in the glory of that moment. Draw your motivation for living from this wonderful reality. I want you to just take a few seconds, think, Is is there one thing from this message that you're feeling the need to act on? If you can identify that, then form that into a clear intention, I intend to, and then ask God to help you to adopt the means to carry that out. Just take a few seconds to think about that. Father, please fasten some part of the truth shared today in each mind and heart here. May we go away from here with a clearer vision of your will for us, a firmer intention to pursue that vision, and a plan to employ means to that end. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.